Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello everybody and welcome back to part two of our top ten favourite comics. I'm sorry, we had a snack in between recording and now it's all stuck in my teeth. Yeah. Um, we don't have an intro this week, we're just going to go straight into it after we've done a couple of emails. Because we do want to try and clear out the email back. Uh, the bag. email back. The email back, <laughs> yes. The email bag. Oh, my email back even. <laughs> You're getting a bit on a bit now, are you? <laughs> uh, Bradley Knoll is the first person out of the sack this week. Born in 1969, as I was, I became an adult as DC was becoming more adult. I remember all this when it happened. It was a good time to read in comics. The Superman and Wonder Woman restarts both brought versions I liked. Which was an improvement, as I was not a fan of either character at the time. I've grown to like a little of the Silver Age stuff now, but wasn't a fan of it when Crisis caused it to happen. I suppose from a sales standpoint it worked for me. I'd forgotten how raw and new it all felt until you guys brought it back to me. Now about Legacy Heroes. I love this idea. I love how it played into the between crisis versions of the DCU. I love the idea of sidekicks growing up to replace the hero. It had a great feeling of family. However, listening to you criticise the idea, I have to admit that from a let's keep it simple for new readers perspective it has some problems. The real problem for the concept, I think, is comic book time. If superheroes age like real people, legacy would make sense. However, comic book time suspends age. No ageing, no need for a legacy. So as much as I like the idea, it just leads to confusion. About Kid Flash being a ginger on TV, the Wests are black on the Flash TV show. So that may be a problem with Kid Flash being red hurt. <laughs> you know, I didn't consider that when we were talking about it. Yeah. But he's absolutely right. So, our, our entire satirical rant yeah. about the persecution of the ginger people. Wasted. <laughs> and in fact, it has just been announced that Kid Flash is, well, Wally West anyway, is going to be on the Flash next season. Mm. So, you know. And I know he's, um, he's African American in the comics now, isn't he? Wally West? Is he? I think so. I've not read the Flash for a bit, so. Um. I think he is. So. I suppose you can argue that they're being faithful to the actual comics okay. in that respect. Because again, as people pointed out to me with the Fantastic Four movie, it looks like it's based on Ultimate Fantastic Four. You don't get to choose which <laughs> comics they're basing on. If yeah. they're basing it on a comic, you know, you don't get to choose your canon. So, alright, fair enough. But yeah, so I'm looking forward to Wally West being in The Flash next week. Thank you for emailing in. Chris Franklin's also emailed. Did you have a email from Chris last week? We didn't. That's shocking, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Things and arrows. Hello, Leyland. Hello, Chris. Yes, I will send you weekly emails when the show ends. I can make up imaginary shows you didn't produce and comment on them. This will let me cope with the show going away. I'm not sure how I can type about sucking my thumb curled up in the fetal position, but I'll try. 
You asked about General Mills cereal. General Mills, or Big G, is actually a company that produces many food products, most famously cereals like Cheerios, Wheaties, etc. So there is no actual General Mills brand cereal like Cap'n Crunch, although I'm surprised no one ever thought of that. Skipping ahead to the actual comet you're covering, Green Arrow lost his fortune and gained a social conscience in Justice League of America 75 from November 1969, written by Denny O'Neill. Just a few months earlier, he'd gotten a new iconic costume, the one he wears in this miniseries, designed by Neil Adams in The Brave and the Bold issue 85. So you can see that the upcoming GLGA creative team was individually trying to spruce up the character of Green Arrow even before they got on the title. Trevor Von Eden is an underrated creator in comics, but I think he suffered from John Romita Jr. syndrome, because somewhere along the way his style evolved into something less than palatable for most. I was a fan of his work of this era, Batman Annual Number 8, which you mentioned, Andy, is a forgotten classic in my estimation, also written by Burr. But just check out Ryan Daly's Flowers and Fishnets blog for scans of Von Eden's 90s Black Canary series. It's hard to imagine that work is by the same artist seen here. His Ollie Queen is actually pretty consistent but the rest is fairly head-scratching, with him often drawing Dinah like a man in an inflated female body stocking. As for his Count Vertigo, he co-created the character with Jerry Conway for a Black Canary story in World's Finest in the late 70s. I think I have all of this mini-series, having missed it on the newsstands back in the day, despite being excited by the house ads for it. I don't believe I've ever read the whole run at all, certainly not all at once, so I think it's high time to remedy that. I've never met a Mike W. Barr story I didn't find worthy of my time. Cheers, Chris. Well, thank you for dropping that knowledge on us, Chris. And all I have to say about Batman Annual Number 8 <laughs> is stay tuned. That's all I'm going to say to you. Uh, last email for today. Although we've got plenty at the minute, haven't we? So we're not running short, which is nice. Michael Bailey emailed in. Hey. Yay. Behind on feedback, current on the show. Hey there, Leylands. It has been far too long since I put fingers to keyboard to comment on the show, but with time drawing short, I guess I need to get this in. ASAFP. I presume the F there is profanity. Or frequently. Oh, yes. As soon as frequently possible. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. No. As soon as fracking possible. That, that yeah, kind yeah. of works. Frigging possible. Mm-hmm. Foots impossible, if you read Hawkeye. Footloose. Footloose possible. You both have been rather busy putting out awesome shows. I have thoughts on all of them, so we'll take them episode by episode. Fisting the Night Away, your best title ever. Laugh myself sick. (laughs) It was almost Fist and Shout. It was. Which would have worked as well. But I'm actually quite fond of Rum Sodomy and Captain Lash. (laughs) (laughs) I think that may be my favourite title (laughs) that we've done. The Multiversity two-parter. I always enjoy hearing you two talk about Morrison because I know the material will get a first shake. Like Seven Soldiers, you maybe want to read this, so I will be ordering the hardcover when it comes out this fall. The biggest surprise came when Andy admitted he didn't get the Watchmen connection to the one story. This isn't condemnation, mind you, just an assumption, as we all know. When you make an assumption, you make an ass out of you and umption. That's from The Long Kiss Goodnight, so I claim no credit. The issue sparked some great conversation, but the thing that hit me later was realising that Morrison was riffing on Watchmen, which I was riffing on, which was riffing on Charlton and Gold Key. Truly a meta-commentary on a meta-commentary. How delightfully, Morrison. Yeah, sorry, whoosh, that flew right past me. Did you get that? Yes. Yes, it was you that pointed out to me? Yeah. Very good. 
The alien costume two-part, another staple of Hey Kids comics, Spider-Man. It's interesting hearing you both cover material from eras and such that you have covered before, but still make the episode sound fresh and new. It's like you've put together a jigsaw puzzle with this era of Peter Parker, and if you listen to all the episodes together in chronological order of the books, you get your complete thoughts on the subject. I like this run of books, but haven't pulled the trigger on the epic collection, and from Bandy's description of the Marvel team-up issues, I may skip it all together and stick with the Venom trade that was released when Spider-Man 3 came out. Do you know I like that? What? I'd not considered that, but we've done a non-linear track like that, haven't we? Yeah. We've done Spider-Man stories from all over the place, mm. and you can pluck them out of the back catalogue and listen to them in order if you want to. Yeah. I like that. Because even with Batman, we've done a lot of Batman, but when we did Nightfall, we did them in order, didn't we? Yeah. We didn't do them consecutively. Mm. We didn't do Nightfall and then Night's Quest and then Night's End and then Prodigal like as one big run. We had gaps in between. But we did them in order. Mm. Whereas with Spider-Man, we've jumped all over the show. Yeah. And I'd, I, I'd, I hadn't realised that we'd done that. But he's right, we have. Mm. So, okay, fair enough. Post-Crisis DC, you guys know how to hit me in my comic book sweet spot. Which is always nice. The four or five years worth of books you covered over these two episodes was my personal golden age, and I must confess that I have a hard time being open to hearing criticism of comics from this era. You all were fur, as usual, and I found myself begrudgingly agree more often than not. I also never noticed the Oliver Twist thing in the Batman story you discussed, and boy did I feel stupid when I realised it. The only two points I'd bring up from these episodes are, number one, Andy kept comparing the era following Crisis on Infinite Earths to the New 52. I feel the need to point out that it's like comparing Apple to oranges. They are both fruit, but they have different tastes and purposes. Crisis was never meant to be a day one reboot. In fact, that led to more problems and solutions over the next 20 years. Sure, Superman and Wonder Woman were taken back to day one, but other than that, they are integrated Earth 2 through whatever the main universe, or did some soft reboots, like with Batman. I'm not saying it always worked, but that's different from the we're going to reboot everything except what his selling approach took with the new 52. Both had unintended consequences, but both were done for different reasons. See, I remember them saying that this is all going to be shiny and new. Yeah. That's my memory of it. And Marv Wolfman wanted everything to have a new number one. Right. So I, I recall Crisis being touted as a new beginning for everything, which obviously isn't what happened, mm. but that's my memory of it. So that's the assumption that I had going into those shows. Number two, I love the fact that Gerard Jones's Green Lantern was a slow burn in terms of storytelling. Those first eight issues are a great read, and whilst it doesn't have the pop that the first Kyle issues had, I got where Jones was coming from. Green Arrow, I've had this series for years and have yet to crack it open. You two made it sound awesome. I will read it sooner rather than later. Danger Girl, love the show, Steve, but I've got no interest in Danger Girl. <laughs> it's not because of your coverage, it just doesn't sound like my thing. I liked hearing you talk about it, though. And that is it for now. More feedback too soon. More feedback soon. Thanks for the great run of episodes. Mikey might be not written at work. Sad. No, oh. oh, you miffed about that. Letting us down. About not writing it at work. Yeah, yeah. I hope we get one more before we finish that's written at work. Oh, yeah. That'd be quite a Waste more company time. <laughs> You're very big on wasting company time, right? <laughs> All right, we'll knock it on the head, though. Got a couple of, uh, of uh, issues. Um, a couple of emails coming in, and um, we're very much looking forward to sharing them with you. Uh, and we'll do that next time. Mm-hmm. But here's a commercial. And we'll be back with our top five of our top ten comics each. So it's still ten comics from your part. Should I shut up now? We all remember seeing years ago those futuristic drawings saying what the future is going to be. 
I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing. Gleaming buildings, fast monorails. This is the future. That was all started by a monster. Twice the size of Manhattan. We want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. Walt Disney World. Better than any other urban environment in America. Two True Freaks proudly presents... We hope that it will be unlike anything else on this earth. Golf courses, campgrounds, stores, hotels... Earning My Ears. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. We're ready to go right now. Earning My Ears, a Walt Disney World-centric podcast, is available monthly at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, going straight back into what we started talking about last time. So we've no need for an introduction. We're just looking at some of our top ten favourite comics. If you wish, go back and download last week's episode and listen to that. It would probably make more sense if you did. Mm-hmm. Probably make more sense if you listen to these two back to back. But yeah. I'm not here to tell you how you should listen to stuff. <laughs> you know, you can listen to them in any order you want. You can fast forward them. Listen to the end first and then go back to the beginning. But do not listen to it on 1.5 speed <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> Batman Annual number 8 was my next choice when we did two episodes on our favourite Batman stories I thought we touched on all of the major publishing moments in the Batman's history it's a good list I'm proud of it and quite satisfied that we stayed away from the more predictable choices however with Batman there's always another great story somewhere that you'd completely forgotten the Messiah of the Crimson Sun from Batman Annual number 8 is one such story. When we recently covered the Green Arrow miniseries from 1983 by Mike W. Barr and Trevor Von Eden, I recall that this team did a Batman Annual and dug it out to see if it was as good as I remembered. Part of the enjoyment of this issue came from it being an annual. Annuals were hard to come by in the UK, but in the early 80s they seemed to change with various anniversary issues and annuals suddenly becoming available. This was one I bought off the stands in 1982. The other part of the enjoyment of this issue was the writer, Mike W. Barr. As a kid, I started to realise that I enjoyed the work of some writers and artists more than others, and one of my favourite writers and favourite characters were Mike W. Barr on Batman. Barr wrote a far more brutal Batman than we were used to, especially in the early 1980s. Barr's Batman didn't actually kill anyone, normally, but he was far less concerned with collateral damage than other interpretations. If a criminal was killed by accident or by his own hand, then that, as far as this Batman was concerned, was poetic justice. Looking at Messiah of the Crimson Sun nowadays, it's just another Batman tale, but at the time, it was quite revolutionary. For one, Trevor Von Eden's art is Frank Miller before Frank Miller, and is actually quite stunning. Uh, We've just read an email from Chris Franklin that told us that Von Eden developed in bizarre artistic ways later on, but here he's pretty much everything Batman artist would emulate post-1986, only he did it first. His Ra's al Ghul in particular looks very much like the design used in the 90s animated series. This story is also yet another attempt by Ra's to wipe out some of the planet Earth's extraneous population and features numerous tropes of that kind of story. Ra's has a death ray that turns the sun's rays into lethal death beams. There are high stakes. Ra's, of course, must fail. He must be betrayed by Talia, who loves Batman, and Talia must be torn by that decision. But within that framework, this story is a very unique Batman story of this time. Batman fails three times during this story. He's forced to work with the US Army and the President, but there's no animosity between them. 
Batman doesn't like it, the army don't like it, but they have their orders and they follow them, working together to get the job done. There is a James Bond feel to the story, as befits a Ra's tale, with Batman working to prevent global annihilation by an obsessed madman. And at one point, Batman even ends up piloting a space shuttle out of Cape Canaveral. There's a decent role for Robin in the drama as well, and we see a Batman and Robin partnership that is one of equals rather than the tired cliché of bickering antagonists. The colouring by Lynn Varley is quite impressive throughout, and it all adds up to a tidy little package. A 42-page story with high stakes, good art and a neat story of a kind they really don't do anymore. At the top of this, I noted that Barr had no problem with a harder-edged Batman who didn't kill, normally, but had no problems doing so when necessary. In this story, Batman kills Ra's al Ghul. He drags his spaceship into the Death Ray, pops his canopy, and blows Ra's out into space where he's turned to ash. How Ra's returned after this, I don't recall, and even Batman doesn't really believe he's dead, even though Robin points out that Batman deliberately and methodically murdered him. And Talia clearly believes he's gone. It's hard to come back from being cremated. Barr was already ahead of the curve, and maybe this is why this story has never been reprinted, but I liked it then, and I like it now. Not that I want Batman to eject all of his enemies into space, you understand? Did you read this one? Yes. What did you think of him killing Raz at the end? Um, I thought, um, I liked it, because it's, it's, you kill off Ra's al Ghul and it doesn't mean anything, but you eject him into space and he gets turned into dust and you can't go to a Lazarus pit. It's kind of a different story. Yeah, I mean, more than the Joker, who we've discussed before, that would have been put down yeah. a long time ago. The Joker very rarely threatens the world. Mm. He's not really into world domination. He's not a cat-stroking James Bond villain. Whereas Raz is. Raz is. Raz is out to re redraw the world in his image, which normally involves copious amounts of death. Yeah. And the best Raz al Ghul stories actually have you see his point of view, mm. but still understand why Batman has to stop him. Yeah. And I think Raz, more than any of them, is somebody who Batman would probably think, I need to put this guy down. Because mm. he is talking about changing the world, destroying the world, killing um, the population. Because Batman would probably agree with him. Yeah. So it's it's a difficult... On the one hand, I don't know what I think about a Batman that deliberately and methodically murders somebody. Which is what he does. Yeah. This isn't Raz being killed by his own hand mm. and Batman just letting it happen. Because it's like, well, hoist by your own petard thing. Yeah. Batman deliberately does this. Well, you said you don't want Batman to eject all of his enemies into space. There's an issue of Batman Incorporated where he does just that to Dr. Death. Does he? Yeah. Because <laughs> Dr. Death just comes back from death, so he'll just be stuck in a perpetual cycle of dying out in space, coming back, dying oh, out right. in space. Alright, so you could argue, though, then, that Batman hasn't actually killed him. Every other minute he has, yeah. But here, Raz is dead. Mm. Raz drifts off into space as Ash. Yeah. As Batman just dispassionately watches out of the porthole. Yeah. <laughs> I'd forgotten that he did that <laughs> when I picked this story. Mm. But the rest of it is really cool as well. One of the things I really did like about it is Batman fails. Yeah. Not once, not twice, but thrice. Mm. He fails three times in this story. 
And that kind of builds up to the idea that Raz needs to be taken down. He's, de- he's a clear and present danger. Yeah. And on the one hand, I'm like, you don't really want to take a bad guy like that out of the picture forever. And Batman doesn't think he's dead, does he? No. Batman is clearly of the opinion at the end of this story, Raz will find a way. I don't see how, <laughs> but alright, whatever, okay. But it's a good one. I like Batman Annual Light a great deal, and the cover's gorgeous. Yeah, it is. The cover's a painted cover by Trevor Bon Eden, which is really, really nice. I really like that one. I like the James Bondiness of it. It is very Bondy, but we mentioned that when we did the Denny O'Neill Neil Adams stuff, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, but there's globe trotting James mm. Bond, and then there's planet trotting James Bond. Yeah, and Batman goes into space Batman in this Batman goes into space to it, there's just this space station yeah. to have a space fight. This is... Moonraker. Yeah, it's Moonraker, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it pretty much is. So, I mean, it's a good one. And yeah. I like it, and I think it's a lot of fun, and it's well worth picking up, if you don't mind seeing Batman callously murder Al Ghul. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my next choice is one where we, we did say we weren't going to talk about them in, in much detail, but somewhere along the lines of writing this, I ended up writing about it in a lot of detail. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll try to keep it simple, breeze through it. Uh, but my next choice is um, a Brian K. Vaughan's Why the Last Man, which is a great read, but it isn't actually as memorable as it is enjoyable. And when I read the series for the first time, it was back in 2008, 2009, and I was about 12 or 13, maybe, going through my phase of trying to be more mature than I actually was. <laughs> which is why one story arc quickly became one of my favourites, despite having not read the rest of the series at that time. Regardless of how mature and clever I thought I was, a lot of this story went a bit over my head, but upon further rereads, I gained more and more from this th- one three-issue story arc, Safe Word, running through issues 18 to 20. Yorick, the last man on Earth, after an unknown virus kills every other man, is left in the hands of 7-Eleven, a culprit agent and friend of his friend, 355. When they're alone, 7-Eleven drags Yorick, w- uh, drugs Yorick. When he wakes up, he finds himself naked and tied up. 7-Eleven, now sporting dominatrix gear, tortures Yorick both physically and mentally, delving into his sexuality and suicide complex. On the verge of death, Yorick sees something he has the desire of living for. There's a lot going on in this story, and a lot of it wouldn't have worked had it been in the hands of a lesser writer. First off, Yorick's sexuality. A lot of them are touchy subjects. He has dreams of himself dressed as Dorothy, and is called derogatory terms when he tells that to 7-Eleven. It's derogatory and offensive, but it works and isn't used just for the sake of it. We only learn this later, but 7-Eleven is trying to help Yorick. But here we see her degrade a man over something he can't control. She forces Yorick to tell her about his first homosexual experience, whilst threatening to use a certain phallic object to get it out of him, which at first seems like degradation until Yorick gives in, and we see a flashback of his childhood to when he was tied up and raped by one of his friends. It's eight panels over two pages that gives us enough information and backstory about Yorick that completely changes how we've previously perceived um, the wannabe escape artist. Has he desired to be an escape artist to feel like he's now in control, or is it because he's trying to escape from the memory? The scene is specifically told extremely well through both dialogue and imagery. The camera stays in a fixed position on Yorick's head, then pans up to a great effect, conveying enough to make it a genuinely shocking scene. The following scene is of his memories of the first time he was with a woman, his girlfriend and objective, I'm saying loosely to a far defence, <coughs> of the series, Beth. 
and the scene uses Polaroid-style panels to convey segments of a memory and visually shows an image burned into Yorick's eyes. It's also a major part of his character. His childhood rape has affected Yorick's perception of sex and sexuality, which is further reinforced by his parents, priests, and the sight of flies feasting on his seed on a used tissue. The three panels of the flies is disgusting, and they're supposed to be. Yorick, to Yorick, the flies represent sex. And then 7-Eleven threatens to rape Yorick, saying it's now his role to repopulate the Earth making Yorick choose between the future of mankind or his relationship. It's a pretty extreme situation, but it makes Yorick think about what's the right thing to do. What's the more selfish thing to do? Does he stay faithful to his girlfriend with the possibility that men will become extinct, or does he turn his back on fidelity in order to repopulate? Going even further on that, 7-Eleven then shows Yorick how insignificant he truly is, asking whether bugs on a tissue really is the worst thing he's ever seen, making him shed his selfishness. To think of how other people have suffered both psychologically and physically in ways worse than he has. And he recalls the day every man died and he saw a woman crying over her son who came out too early. And this time we get a full, pl a full splash page devoted to this. A floor littered with dead men and one woman, alive but at a great cost, holding her unborn son in her arms. Again, and it's extreme but it points out the selfishness of people. We're so carried away with our own suffering, which, yes, it's important. But it makes us forget that other people are also suffering, sometimes worse and sometimes not so much, but they're suffering nonetheless, which is just important to them as our suffering is to ourselves. The 7-Eleven then continues to put Yorick down, telling him that his pet monkey and best friend, Ampersand, will die before his friends return from the hospital, until Yorick gives in and finally gives himself to her, at which point she denies him of herself having broken him. She then carries him to a pool where she confronts him with his suicidal tendencies and their origin, seeing a policewoman who had killed herself after the men had died. If a policewoman, someone Yorick perceives to be stronger than him, couldn't live in this world, then what chance did he have? And again, 7-Eleven is there to put Yorick down in a way that brings suicide into question. Is it a strong or a weak thing to do? Was the policewoman strong or weak in pulling the trigger because she didn't want to live in this world? And what about Yorick? He was unable to pull the trigger, but has thrown himself into situations that could have gotten himself killed, and is told that he is weak for wanting others to do to him that he couldn't do to himself. He then tells 7-Eleven to kill him, and so she drowns him until he's basked in a warm light and finds his reason to live and continue with the series. There is a lot of heavy stuff going on in these issues that brings into question almost everything from a mankind level to a more personal level, from gender, sexuality, suicide, and it never once feels too heavy, too preachy. And Vaughn is a good enough writer to make this both a thought-provoking and overall enjoyable read. It's a story that can only work in an original creator-owned journey of a story. It also helps that after everything we see 7-Eleven put Yorick through, we see them both reading together at the end. Yeah, and then she gets killed. Yeah. 
<laughs> so it's even bleaker when you get to the ending. Or it's happy because well, yeah. she got what she couldn't do for herself. She got because the whole point of it is she is also afflicted by the same thing that she thinks Yorick is afflicted by. Yeah. She doesn't know whether she wants to live in this world anymore. She has pondered suicide, but she doesn't feel that she is strong enough to do that. Mm. Which com- comes into the question, the whole suicide thing that you mentioned. Is it a strong thing to do or is it a weak thing to do? Is it a selfish thing to do? Yeah. Or is it the right thing to do? for certain people mm. and it's it's a really it is actually it's a good little three part story it's, it's really well done and how it's a it's heavy themes but it's not a heavy read no but um, that, well, that's why the last man yeah that's the um, perfect description of it what was it slavers the punisher one yeah that was heavy themes and a heavy read this mm. it's it's not you don't realise how much psychology is actually going on within the framework of the story until you step back and actually look at what it is that you're reading yeah yeah, it was a good choice, that. I thought you were going to go for either the last issue or the first issue. I was thinking about the last issue. That was a contender, but I thought I didn't want to have um, another last issue uh, hmm. in the show, and also it's all going to be last issues for the next few weeks. Yeah, as we as we cruise along to the end. All right, yeah, fair enough. Good choice. Uh, my number four, Astro City, which is a book by Kurt Busiek and Brent Anderson that attempts to marry the visual realism of Marvels with the real-world tone of heroes and does so to great effect. Created in 1995, Astro City takes the general idea of early Marvels, that superheroes exist in the real-world context, but takes it to the next level. Astro City genuinely feels like the world outside your window, only with cartoon animals and flying super beings. Busiek deserves a lot of credit for Astro City and keeping it to only one title despite launching its image it's now at Wildstorm and still being published one of the more memorable issues of the room was the first issue in Dreams which follows Samaritan Astro City's Superman analogue as he goes about his daily duties of saving the world and maintaining a secret identity Never has the job of a superhero seemed as tiring as Busiet makes it sound, with Samaritan basically spending all night and all day juggling his superheroic responsibilities, his private life, such as it is, and his membership in the super team, the Honor Guard. Busiek tells a tale that is as sad as it is exhilarating when we realise that even with all these great powers the only time Samaritan gets to enjoy them and revel in his ability to fly is in his dreams. This pick is really a vote for Astro City generally, a really underrated series that I enjoy immensely. But this first issue is a treat and a good example of the types of stories told in this book. The first issue was free on Comixology or the DC app for ages. Uh, So with a bit of luck, it probably still is. And you can go and check it out and see what you think about it. Have you read Astro City? Or did you never read Astro City? I've never read it. Oh, right, okay. It, it it didn't exactly seem like something I'd never read before. It was Kingdom Come, it was Marvels. Yeah. Um, I, I really enjoyed it, though. Was every issue a one-off about a different person? The first six-issue miniseries was a one-off about different characters. Right. And as the series has gone on, he's jumped backwards and forwards in time yeah. and told us stories about earlier in Astro City and later in Astro City. And in the background, he's dropped little hints about something and then he's done six issue arcs right. on that one little event. Yeah. Like um, uh, Alter Boy and the Confessor. Okay. The Alter Boy ultimately takes the place of the Confessor, the right. Legacy Hero thing again. And yeah. We knew that, but then he told us the story of how that happened. Right. So Samaritan isn't the regular character, okay. although he sometimes is in the background. Yeah. And sometimes there was a really good issue that was the Honor Guard have a phone service 
right. that you can phone in an emergency and the people on the phone it's their job to filter out the hoax calls yeah. and the ones that aren't important to just refer them to the police right. to the ones that really do need the honour guard right. like world shaking events and this one issue had this woman make the wrong call and somebody died Right. So she passed it over to the police. I disregarded it, and she—it was a serious thing. Right. And so that one wasn't even about the honor guard. Mm. It's about the people who work for them. Yeah. And it's—it's it's a really good series, Astro Setter. It's very—it doesn't—it suffered because of delays again. Right. And Kurt Busiek was ill and couldn't write it for ages. Yeah. So you kind of forgive him for that, but it lost its momentum. Because it did this six-issue miniseries, then it launched a new series that should have been an ongoing, and I think it only lasted something like 22 or 23 issues before Busiek's illness forced him to quit. Yeah. And then it was gone for ages. And now, for some reason, it's not at Image anymore, it's over at Wildstar. Right. But it's now a continuing series. Yeah. But now it seems to be the only thing Busiek writes in comics. Right. Whereas back then he was doing Until Tales Spider-Man and Iron Man, he was doing lots of other stuff as well. Mm. So, it's a good, it's well worth reading. It is Kingdom Come. Yeah, and it is Marvels, but because they're his own characters, he can do a lot more with it. Mm. He can kill people off and and stuff like that. Yeah, even though there is a lot of stuff where you're going, this is just Superman, isn't it? Well, this is what that kind of was. Yeah, this is what. But he, it grows from that point. And yeah, becomes more than it actually is. Because it was quite interesting to see how just because he can go really really fast to him, it's real time. Yeah. And uh, so this being an image book as well, there's a there's a poster in the middle of the cover. Yeah, by Alec, Alex Ross did all the design work and painted the covers. And there's a nice little sketch on the back. And it, yeah, there's a nice little sketch of Samaritan on the back. But uh, Brent Anderson does the interiors. It's well, it's very recommended. Astro City. I really do like it. I think it's a great book. What's your number four, Michael? My uh, next pick is the Sandman issue six. Um, now, because I only picked one Morrison, I kind of accidentally picked two Neil Games. <laughs> accidentally. <laughs> sort of, kind of accidentally, yeah. Right. Um, Neil Gaiman is a writer of novels and comics who's dabbled in a lot of genres from fancy to horror. The first book I read of his was Coraline, a horror book, so it makes sense for his work on Vertigo to be a mix of both. Sandman started out as a horror title with elements of fantasy in the superhero genre, but slowly became a fantasy book as the years passed. There were times when the series got dark with stories about the loss of children and a convention for serial killers, but my favourite horror issue is 24 Hours. The issue is near the end of the opening story arc, but slows down its pace before the finale. It chronicles Dr. Destiny for the 24 hours he spends in a cafe after defeating Dream and taking his ruby. But the issue focuses on the people of the cafe rather than Dee himself. In true Gaiman fashion, it's a disturbing tale of horror, as Dee twists the minds of the people inside. But it's a fun and sometimes funny read. The characters are as elaborately normal as David Lynch characters, ranging from the town drunk to a loud businessman, to a young lesbian fighting against prejudice, to a writer disguising herself as a waitress. Now at first, these characters appear to be one-dimensional, and we learn about them through the waitress, who knows everything about everyone, and uses them as material for her books, in which she writes happy endings for everybody. Happy is in what makes her happy. 
there's a hint that this life isn't what she wanted, and so she deludes herself into thinking she's a writer disguised as a waitress. And as the hours go by, not only do we get um, a page that made me laugh out loud, where a children's TV presenter kills himself, <laughs> but we delve deeper into the lives of the people and their fantasies that, are, that include abusing women, preserving unfaithful husbands, and being reunited with lovers. Dee tortures these people by making them commit horrible acts, like making them act like animals, in which the alpha male kills the young challenger, before giving them back their minds long enough for them to suffer even further. He makes them sacrifice themselves for him, and plays murder in the dark with them, and watches them have sex for all his pleasure. And the thing that's most chilling about this issue is that he barely gets any pleasure from it. He does it simply because he can. This is a really neat issue. That lets Gaiman do what he does best. Write people. His stories can be as fantastic as they come and be set in worlds unrecognisable to our own, but the best thing he writes is people, and that's clearly on display here. Mike Dringenberg's art also helps a lot to make it a great horror comic, changing his art depending on the psychological state of the characters and their mindset. So you inadvertently chose two Neil Gaimans? I did. Did you only realise that after the fact? I did, because I picked this one up first and um, wrote all my notes on it. And then Signal to Noise came uh, later. It was only a couple of days ago afterwards. So, <laughs> as I was writing up the notes, going, ooh, oh well. Oh, well, too late now. Yeah. <laughs> Can't change it now. We're sitting down to record. Yep. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. If you're going to have two stories, I've got two Tom DeFalcos. Yeah. You've got two Neil Gaiman's. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite the same. At least the two different kinds of stories. No, they were both what ifs. No, I meant mine. Oh yeah, yours were the two different kinds of stories. Mine were both what ifs. Yeah. You win. <laughs> yeah, the first issues of Samuel, we used to have that as preludes and nocturnes, didn't we? Yeah. We used to have that as have we still got them? No. What do we do with them? Game to Grand Pete when I got the absolute. Oh did we? Alright, oh, okay. I wonder if you ever read them. Because he likes Neil Gaiman. Yeah. So, alright, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, good issue, good early issue. Was Matt, has Kelly Jones gone by that point? Kelly Jones hasn't started. Right, so who was the guy who drew it with him who felt he was wrong for it? Something, something the third. J, it wasn't J.H. Williams the third, it was, was it? It was Mike Dringenberg and... Malcolm Jones the third. Yes. Who would ultimately go and ink Kelly Jones, I think, mm. on uh, various issues of Batman. Yeah, he didn't feel that he was right for the project, did he? So he took no. himself off it. I like Hendrix and the Beatles. Is that what led to it having a rotating table of artists. I think it might have done, yeah. If he'd have stuck around... It'd have just been them. It would have just been him for the entire run. Mm. But him leaving made... Does that probably made the boot better? Arguably, yeah. Because that's one of Sam Man's selling points, isn't it? Mm. The rotating table of artists. Fair enough. Number three, for me, anyway. Back at the top of the show... I said there was an issue in this list where I had cheated, and that, coincidentally, they were both on the same comic. This is that comic. DC Comics Presents issue 85 is one of four issues of Superman, written by professional magician and full-time misanthrope Alan Moore. Moore's stories regularly appear on top ten lists of best Superman and best comics lists, so this was a rather obvious choice. Also, I do not have this as the regular issue, although I do have the other three Alan Moore issues which I bought off the stands. Why I missed this issue of DC Comics Presents is unknown, but I don't ever recall ever seeing this in the newsagents, as I'm pretty sure the painted cover would have stuck out. However, the reason this is on my pick is this is easily my favourite of Alan Moore's Superman stories, and a general favourite of mine, possibly because it isn't, like his other comics, an annual or the last Superman story ever. It's just another issue of DC Comics Presents. There's nothing special about it, 
That's probably why I like it. There was a black and white trade published by Titan Comics in the late 1980s with a cover that has a silhouette of Superman on it. The only colour is the S emblem, which was an embossed gold. I think that this was the first ever collection of more stories, and I first read it in the library of the school I worked at at the time. And when they put a load of books up for sale later, I bought it for Michael. Which is why it's still got all the library sticker things right. inside of it. Of all the stories in it, which included For the Man Who Has Everything and Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, this was a standout. The jungle line has Clark exposed to a piece of fauna that plopped onto a passing meteorite when Krypton exploded, thus escaping the radiation that converted all Kryptonian remnants into Kryptonite. It is a deadly fungus called blood morel, and once in the bloodstream, killed 92% of Kryptonians exposed to it. Feverish and delusional, Superman heads into the swamps to die. Though he encounters the Swamp Thing, who helps Superman, albeit without Superman knowing. This, the first of Moore's Supermans to be published, has essentially the same themes as his other two Superman stories. The death of the main character and delusions brought on by outside influences. This one feels different though, and I'm not sure why. That it's told in an issue of a quite unremarkable comic series probably aids in its feelings of unpredictability. DC Comics Presents was the Superman team-up book of the 80s, and as with all team-up books of this time, it was solid, entertaining, but often goofy stuff. Always a good read, but rarely outstanding. So when a remarkable issue did come along, such as issue 61 or any of the annuals, it normally made the reader sit up and take note. As with a lot of Moore's work, this is shot through with iconoclasm, although some of the best Silver Age Superman stories dealt with the hero's death. And in some of those, he actually died. Moore plays with structure ever so slightly, and we see a Superman here unlike any we've really seen before, like a drug addict craving his next fix. He's twitchy, unkempt, and paranoid, a little bit like Doctor Strange in Doctor Strange's origin. But more importantly, we see a Superman that refuses to go down without a fight, analysing every detail in an effort to survive until his powers fade and he has no choice but to simply crawl off and die alone. This was one of the problems with the story. Superman has any number of scientist friends who could have helped him here, but if he does that, we don't have a story. The absence of Lois is also puzzling. What is here, though, is quite remarkable. Rick Vici's art perfectly captures the sweaty and feverish Superman and his panic at his powers blinking out and coming back. Moore even manages to sneak in some lovely moments of black humour, such as the scene where Clark imagines himself plummeting to his death after a power cut, or Superman heading where there are no super people. The South. The final battle, such as it is, takes place in Superman's head as he fights to cleanse himself of the Spore's influence with the aid of the Swamp Thing, who pulls Superman into the green, ridding the Man of Tomorrow of the Spore's infecting him. There's something selfless about the Swamp Thing's acts that sum up the very nature of heroism, in that Superman thinks he rode this one out himself. Like a coke addict going cold turkey, Superman merely thinks his body broke the back of the infection alone, and he flies away, none the wiser. Ultimately, this is my favourite of Moore's stories, simply because it's a conventional superhero story. Moore's fans probably think of this as a lesser work for that very reason, and Moore's brand of cynicism wears thin on me after a while. And as much as I like iconoclastic and dark science fiction, I think that you can go to that well too many times. And with a character like Superman, there should be a feeling of 50s optimism. And even though Moore's other Superman stories do have happy endings of a fashion, this was just another issue of just another comic series, and that's why I think it stands out. 
You had that black. You've still got that black and white book, haven't you? Dick. Um, and to be honest, I don't like seeing this in colour. Do you not? No. What do you not like about Because you, you're used to it in the black and white. Well, not only that, but I think it's like one of those issues that looks better in black and white. Mm. It kind of suits it more. What, because of the story that it's telling? Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right. See, I got I read that a couple of times in the library, and then I got it for you. At the moment, this is in the, the Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow Deluxe Edition hardcover, which I got from Costco for a fiver. Right. So it was like for a far because Costco really has comic books and graphic novels. Yeah. So the fact that this was there was like, what the hell is this doing here? Mm. And I was like, well, it's a fiver, and I've already got it, but it's nice and hardcover and colour. Yeah. So we'll have it again. So that's what we're reading this in. Although we we do still have the trade that we originally got it. In. it what is this? Do you like this one? Yeah. Um, I did actually. I've, I've always liked it since I first read it. Mm. Um, I think I just like the swamp thing in it really, and. Um, I've, I've never read more Swamp Thing. I've never read all more Swamp Thing. I really liked more writing Swamp Thing in this, and that's that's kind of why I really liked it. Superman's not the main character, really. No, Superman's essentially the reason for the story to come into being. Yeah. But, yeah, the, the selfless act, the heroic moment in this is Swamp Thing. Mm. And Superman doesn't even know Swamp Thing helped him. Yeah. Which is quite what, so... And the only bit I thought was a little bit silly was at the end he just kind of flexes and his clothes pop off him. Yeah. That's that's a bit daft. But it's a nice heroic Superman pose. Mm. And I do like that Superman's got a five o'clock shadow. He's got stubble. Yeah. I mean, everyone thinks that that's a John Byrne edition, don't they? Mm. That John Byrne was the first to show Superman with stubble. But no, yeah. We quite clearly see him before that happened. So I like this one. I really do like the splash patch. Yeah. The splash page is awesome. Superman driving down the the endless road in the middle of the swamps and whatever the hell that is above the yeah. I don't know what it's supposed to represent, but it's good. I like it. I like that one a lot. And that's one of my favourite Alan Moore stories. What's your number three? Uh, my my number three. Right, this is a fun one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's no secret that I wasn't the biggest fan of Kirby's work. I've read all of the first omnibus of the Lee Kirby Fantastic Four, and it did nothing for me. In my eyes, Kirby was a poor and muddy artist with no concept of anatomy, and what people argued to be energy was just style over substance. Now I'll reread the same omnibus, and I won't change my opinion. It's also no secret that Morrison is my favourite writer and has written some of my favourite stories, which includes Final Crisis, a story that wouldn't exist if it weren't for Kirby. After reading so many Fourth World-inspired stories, I decided to read Jack Kirby's Fourth World Omnibus when you got it mm. a while ago. Um, I'll be honest, I had to force myself to read the Jimmy Olsen stuff, but I soon saw what everyone else could see. Apart from Superman's face, every line was refined, every panel was explosive, every black-and-white montage was pretty trippy. The action started before the issue did and just kept on going. Not only that, but it was a crossover that was so well-constructed that even with the few minor inconsistencies, chronicled a complete story. Even though each series moved on their own, a small piece of information here or there, or a dark side appearance, would add more to the overall story, making it satisfying to connect bits and pieces yourself. It's the general consensus that Kirby's a better artist than storyteller, but I disagree, and it's all because of this series. The Paranoid Pill 
is an issue of Mr. Miracle, issue 3, in which Scott Free is challenged by Dr. Bedlam to descend from the penthouse of a 50-story building to the lobby whilst he's attacked by the inhabitants who have been infected by Bedlam's titular paranoid pill. After the issue is set up, but when the action starts, boy does it start, it becomes fast-paced action sequences, tense and tight like a scene from 28 Days Later or The Raid, a film it shows a similar plot with. It's obviously where some final crisis came from, brainwashing civilians to fight, meaning the heroes can't fight back because of their morals, but there's something about seeing how it happened the first time and seeing the fourth world in its original raw story that makes Final Crisis and its other influences so much richer. There's not much to this issue, it adds nothing to the overall fourth world story and it sets up the next issue, but it's a damn good setup that has a cliffhanger ending as tense as the action is. Whilst the issue isn't one that had me whilst this issue isn't the one that had me interested, it's the issue that had me hooked. But unfortunately by the time we got the second omnibus, the momentum that kept me going through this one had died out, so I've never actually read how this pans out. Get him finished! I would, but <laughs> Start at the beginning, just work through the whole lot. Alright. While it's building up. Yeah, the the ending to this is brilliant. The cliffhanger ended. Yeah. That's absolutely fantastic. You know I hadn't made the red connection. Yeah. But you're right. It, it's exactly like the red, isn't it? Mm. And Judge Dread. Yeah. Dread, which is exactly like the red. Yeah. So that works out well. I like that one. My only problem with that, Vinnie Coletta inked it. Right. As opposed to Mike Royer. And yeah. Mike Royer's work on Fourth World is much better right. than Vinnie Coletta's. Vinnie Coletta's stuff doesn't. I can kind of live with him on Thor. Yeah. Because essentially he's the only real inker that he had on Thor. Mm. And he did such a long run on it. I know other inkers did as well, but. Colette is the one you think of when you think of Thor. But Mike Roy did a much better job on Kirby's Fourth World stuff. Yeah. And you're reading it going, can Vinny leave now? <laughs> and just get to Mike Roy. But yeah, that ending was brilliant. I enjoyed that one. It was a good choice. I was uh, very impressed that you picked a Jack Kirby. Mm. But you were five years ago wouldn't have picked a Jack Kirby, <laughs> would he? Probably not. Probably not. Number two for me, Star Wars. When I was a kid, I used to cycle to the shops in the mini shopping arcade down the road to pick up milk for my grandparents. I never minded, as it was all downhill, and to get there, a shortcut could be taken across a dirt path through a small, overgrown piece of land. This brought me out in a small alleyway that exited right opposite the shopping centre. Of course, I pretended this was the Death Star Trench. On one particular occasion, I recall being sent for milk, which I dutifully did. But as usual, I stopped by the newsagents, I think it was a Martins, to see if there were any comics. One caught my eye. Star Wars Monthly 162 from October 1982. It had a blood-red cover, a close-up of Luke Skywalker's face, screaming in rage, and had only a small amount of cover copy. Luke Skywalker, pariah. I stood stirring at that comic for a good few moments. I drifted away from the UK Empire Strikes Back Weekly and had no idea that it had become a monthly title with issue 159. I did know one thing. I had to have that comic. It was 45 pence, a tad more expensive than the UK weeklies I normally bought, but I had enough, and hey, my grandparents probably wouldn't be too upset. They liked me reading, right? Besides, if I just went out and bought it, they could be as upset as they want. I still had the comic. I bombed back home with milk and comic in hand, more difficult than you might think, because it was all uphill returning home, and tore into the issue. Originally from Star Wars issue 62, Pariah was from the middle of arguably the best run in that series, the issue by David Michelini, Walt Simonson and Tom Palmer. 
Unusually for that time, Star Wars Monthly used the exact same cover as the US editions. And the advantage of the monthly format meant that we UK readers actually got a full 22-page Star Wars story, rather than one chopped up into three different segments. And in addition, we got a backup strip, which I think here was ROM. Pariah is essentially part two of an ongoing narrative. As per most comics of this era, I wasn't lost, although it did make me want to locate the previous issue. The next day, I dashed around the corner to the newsagents at the other end of my street. Sometimes, the bigger chains, like Martin's, got their comics on time, but the smaller chains were a few days later. If I was lucky, they may still have issue 161 on the stands they did. It was a painted cover unique to the UK title by John Higgins and I got to read how the story began. Here we learn that Luke used the force to destroy an enemy fighter but later learned it was well respected and potential paramour Shira Bree. Luke is ostracised for killing the well-liked rebel and determines to learn why the force let him down like that. He backtracks Shira's path and on the planet where she said she grew up, Shalvalane, he discovers more mysteries when he learns that humans have never lived there. The trail also leads him to Darth Vader. Pariah was gobsmacking as a kid and still holds up well today. It's wheel spinning for sure. Michelini's talked about the many restrictions he was under working on Star Wars at this point in between Empire and Jedi. But he demonstrates how a good writer can work around problems and still write a gripping tale. There's a TV feel to the episode. It's not an episode. There's a TV feel to the issue that shows what a Star Wars TV show of this era may have felt like. The art is also really good. The ships and landscapes all look sufficiently Star Warsy, and the likenesses of Hamill and Fisher are good enough to be recognisably the characters, but not overly photo-referenced. Tom Palmer said he purchased a number of Star Wars toys to look at so he could draw them from different angles and have them look authentic. Marvel's Star Wars series doesn't get the credit it deserves for keeping the Star Wars flame alive. These stories kept us Star Wars-deprived kids suckling at the teat as we waited for Return of the Jedi. And this magnificent cliffhanger ending, the arrival of Darth Vader, was absolutely mind-blowing and practically ensured we would return next month for the conclusion of the story. Do you read this one? Yeah. You read them all? Uh, yeah. Very impressed. Apart from the one I didn't. Apart from the one that you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> that always makes perfect sense. Yeah, I read them all, apart from the one I didn't read. Yeah. yeah that's perfectly good. Did you, what did you think of it? Um, As a product of the prequels. Uh, I, I don't know. I quite, it, to me, it felt more like uh, a Battlestar Galactica. Well, that's what I meant when I said it, it feels like a TV show version of Star Wars. Yeah, plus all the rebels hanging out in the, the rec room. Yeah, and having fun. Yeah, um, that was cool. And I liked, uh, no, no one liked Luke Skywalker, and I liked that. That was pretty, <laughs> it was pretty neat. <laughs> no one liked Luke because he's just killed Shira. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was quite a good bit. And I did like that Darth Vader's in it. Hmm. Because one of the embargoes that they had was Luke wasn't allowed to meet Darth Vader. Yeah. And this was Michelini's way of getting around it. Death, Darth Vader will be revealed in the next issue to be a hologram. Right. But we do actually get to see the real Darth Vader at the end of the issue. Right. So that was that was cool. One of the things I've been thinking with these comics is surely there's only so much you can do if it's set between the movies. Yeah. So having nobody like Luke Skywalker in this, including Lando... Oh, Lando likes him. Lando's like, yeah, yeah, I'll be back in 15 minutes. Yeah, 15 minutes. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. So he lets him take the Millennium Falcon. He just has to hide he, it. He just has to pretend that he's letting him take the Millennium Falcon. I liked it, because as well, it's, it's Luke and Chewie just having their own mission together. 
Yeah. And I like that Princess Leia goes along with the charade when they pretend that they're yelling at each other. Mm. I like that. I think this is one of the best issues. Like, you see, yeah, there is only so much they can do with the fact that David Michelini just came up with so many good ideas in between Empire and Jedi that this was actually the best era for the comic. Right. You'd think with Han Solo off the table... Yeah. And Luke not being allowed to meet Darth Vader because they're obviously saving that for Return of the Jedi. Mm. You'd think this would be one of the weakest periods for the comic, and it isn't. Yeah. It's actually one of the best. Well, it'd be challenging for a writer. Yeah, and the amount of times he said he came up with ideas and they vetoed him. Mm. He came up with the Hoojibs. Right. Little furry creatures that oh, live on a right. planet that help the rebels. Yeah. He came up with the idea of the rebels building the rebels, the Empire building a second Death Star. Right. And then Lucasfilm said, no, you can't do that. Okay. So there was a number of times he came up with ideas that prefigured Return of the Jedi. Yeah, so, so did they use that for the movie or did they stop him from doing it because of the movie? They stopped him from doing it and he changed it to a, a something else. I can't remember what it was at the top of my head. It wasn't the Tarkin, was it? That was earlier on, I think. I'm mixing up my Star Wars chronology, but he changed it to something else and still did the story and got away with it because it right. wasn't a second Death Star. Yeah. And the hu- he changed the Hoojibs so they became the Hoojibs, so he got away with that as well. Right. But essentially they were like Tribbles yeah. and Ewoks. So he was doing quite a lot that he got away with. I love that one. I love that era. I think that era of Star Wars comics is absolutely brilliant. What's your number two? Um, yeah, my next choice is Mobile Suit Gundam, The Origin. Uh, as I said last week, most of my childhood was spent watching Toonami. And one of those shows I was a big fan of was Gundam Wing, the somewhat exaggerated spin-off of the 1979 series Mobile Suit Gundam. I've never seen the original series, but when I saw the vertical reprints of the 2001-2011 series Origin, I didn't really need to or want to. Origin is a manga series that's based on the show by the original character designer Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, which uh, was designed to be the definitive version, adding backstory to make this richer than the show. I got the first three volumes for Christmas in 2013 because Mum bought them, Mm. uh, and I was not expecting what I read. Gundam Wing was more of an action drama, each mobile suit was unique and elaborate along with unique weapons for them, and was, from what I remember, primarily Kulas space battles. Well, Origin is a much different story. Despite being set in the future in which humanity has begun to live in space colonies, it tells a realistic tale of war, but with giant mechs. Think Battlestar Galactica. In fact, that's what the series became in a few issues' time. The colony furthest from the Earth became independent, the Principality of Zeon, and waged war against the colonists for independence. Now think Scotland. <laughs> After an attack on the colony, a ragtag military vessel departs for the Federation base at Jaburo Earth, where they'll deliver the experimental RX-78 Gundam mobile suit, along with Amuro, a reckless young man who gets drafted into the war simply because he came into possession of the suit and is a damn good pilot. It's a futuristic sci-fi drama, but it's grounded by reality. There's never any doubt that there's a war going on and that the war takes its toll on characters. It's a real war with real effects. And the art throughout is gorgeous and is benefited from being drawn by a member of the original series. Something that might be a problem is how it reads like frames from the show, which is the most obvious in the opening scene. But in my opinion, this slows the reader down. And whilst it is slow makes the panels and action flow perfectly. There's a great use of colour as well. As with most manga, the opening pages are in colour, which are exceptionally painted, but the black and white pages make great use of tones and with light being shown really well by contrasting against heavy blacks. 
I have to confess I haven't read the entire series, but I have read as being a great war drama with a sci-fi backdrop. Uh, yeah, I love this. Yeah. I thought this was great. Mm. I was actually going to carry on and read the rest of it. And I thought, <laughs> oh, right, yeah, he only wants me to read the first bit. Yeah. It's proper science fiction. It's one of those where I would have choose, chosen all of it, but that first one, the opening scene in particular, is really good. Right, how many more volumes are there? There is... This, I think there's a lot 11 or 12. Oh, no, and have you only got three? Yeah. Oh, okay. Guess we're getting you them for Christmas. <laughs> but no, it was brilliant. Mm. Yeah, it was proper science fiction. It felt like, yeah, like Starship Troopers meets 2001. Yeah. Because there's that kind of elagic opening where everything's quite slow and you're zooming in on the spaceships and then the action starts. Yeah. And it becomes really quite militaristic science fiction. Mm. But it was really cool. Yeah. It was brilliant. And I love that the opening was in colour and then it goes to black and white. And it was, it was very impressive. <laughs> I was genuinely impressed by it. I thought it was brilliant. Uh, and now I have to buy you the other seven volumes, don't I? So you can read them. Yeah. <laughs> so that I can finish it off. Yeah. It was really good. I was very impressed with it. I liked Yu-Gi-Oh! Yeah. But that just felt more grown up. Yeah. It felt like, like I say, it felt like proper, it felt like Robert Heinlein science fiction. Mm. It felt really good. And then Gundam shows up at the end. Yeah. So then you've got Iron Man. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. It was really enjoyable. My final pick for the show. In 1996, Peter Parker was no more. Pensioned off due to the problems of a married character being far removed from the Spider-Man everybody knew and loved, Peter and his bride, Murray Jane, were shipped off to Pittsburgh, or somewhere, where Peter, having revealed to be a clone, lost his powers and Murray Jane was pregnant. The mantle of Spider-Man was passed over to Ben Riley, a.k.a. the real Peter Parker. In actuality, a man who thought he was a clone of Peter, but was in fact really Peter. Confused? No more than the readers of the time were, but this is the way things were going to be forever and ever. Amen. Ben Riley was Spider-Man. Well, almost. Still, to dismiss this time period is to ignore that there were some damn good stories here. Not least this hugely underrated annual in the late 1990s, Marvel stopped numbering their annuals, instead labelling them by the year of their publication, which makes cataloguing them a huge pain in the arse. And one such was this little hidden gem from Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends and John Romita Sr. Heart and Soul is a flashback to the early Romita Sr. era of Spider-Man, circa when Peter was dating Gwen, MJ was dating Harry, and Captain George Stacy and Robbie Robertson were wondering why Spider-Man was around so much. So, probably around issue 47 of ASM. Ostensibly to show that Ben has all of Peter's memories, he being the real deal and all, this flashback tale also manages to fill in some background details, such as when Captain Stacy started to figure out that Peter was Spider-Man, and iron over some wrinkles in the Norman Osborn Green Goblin saga. But spending time pondering continuity issues takes time away from enjoying this simply wonderful trip down memory lane. DeFalco does his best Stan Lee impersonation, and having Romita Sr. ink Frenzy's pencils just adds to the feeling that this is a lost issue of the amazing title from 1968 or so. DeFalco has the benefit of hindsight in constructing his story, but it's the little details that, for long-time Spider-Man fans, make this a joy to read. In an era as convoluted as this one, a simple tale from the past such as this was Manna from Heaven. The story seems to be criminally ignored, or maybe it gets lumped in with the clone era and unfairly maligned, but whatever the case, this is a brilliant issue from an oft-ignored creative team, and if you've never read it, you owe it to yourself to track it down. There's also a second flashback story in this issue, 
by Fabian Nietzsche and Steve Light from the black costume era, but it's not as good, so you don't have to read that one if you don't want. I didn't. Did you read the whole thing, or just the DeFalco bit? Just the DeFalco bit. Did you like it? Because you're not as emotionally invested in this era of Spider-Man as I am. True. So, I was interested if this played out for you, or if it just felt old-fashioned. Uh, I, I liked it feeling old-fashioned, because I got that's what they were going for. Yeah, that is what they were going for. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, the only thing I didn't like about it was the Ben Riley bits. Yeah, the, 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 see, maybe that's why this isn't as fondly remembered now mm. as as it should be. Because it's got that framing sequence with Ben Riley, Which is really unnecessary, really. Yeah, it's, it's there just to show that Ben has Peter's memories. Yeah. And this is him. And all of that that happened, happened to him. Yeah. And it's a little bit... It's a little bit heavy-handed in that regard. Because mm. you can lop off the first four pages and the last page and just make it a flashback tale. But you can't really do that because Ben's on the top of that page that starts the flashback. Yeah. So you'd have to cut him off there. And then Peter and, and Gwen are kissing on the final page when it cuts back to being Ben. Yeah. So you can't really lop those pages off and make it just a standalone flashback issue. I mean, maybe you could do some redrawing and give it a different splash page or whatever. Mm. But it's the last page that gives you a problem, isn't it? Because you can't just stop there. Unless, again, you redrew the last page. Yeah. Certainly Friends and Ramita Senior would probably be up for that. Mm. And then you could reprint that as just as a lost issue. I love that one. And it's one of my all-time favourite issues of Spider-Man that we didn't cover when we did Top Spider-Man Stories because it's an annual. Right. And I had that ridiculous rule that we don't cover yeah. annuals, whereas this time I could cover whatever the hell I like. And that's what I went for. So, yeah. good, 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 good. What's your final choice? My final choice is one that I had a lot of uh, trouble... I knew exactly what I wanted, but I had trouble explaining why I wanted to include it. Because uh, I, I wrote this this little bit quite a few times and still not entirely happy about it. All right, fair enough. Um, but we've covered Hellblazer before in great detail in our <laughs> Farewell Hellblazer trilogy. But I can't remember what I said about it, so I can repeat myself. You could have gone back and listened to them. I could have, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, my first introduction to the character John Constantine was Garth Ennis's run, which I'd read after Preacher and Hitman. One of the first things that struck me was the similarities it had to Preacher with religioners, as well as it being a way Ennis could convey his opinions. Hellblazer... Preacher was a love letter to Americana whereas Hellblazer was a love letter to Ennis's romanticised island. But it was really more about John Constantine. To make it its own, Ennis introduced a new supporting cast of friends and loved ones in John's life, Kit Ryan. Um, Kit being the card Ennis would play when he wanted to write a story about Ireland, usually the, uh, the then-current Troubles. John's always been portrayed as a real person, but Ennis has a way of writing real people that you just connect with. And so at the end of his three-year run, it was quite bittersweet to see everyone and everything we'd been reading about, for me it was three days, be <laughs> brushed aside for the next writer. Reek at the Gates of Hell is the final arc in Garth Ennis' initial run alongside artist Steve Dillon, who took over near the end, which wraps up everything since Dangerous Habits, in true Garth Ennis fashion. It's the final showdown between John and the Devil after the bluff John played on the Three Fallen, set against the backdrop of racial attacks and riots. John's mates are killed, either because of John or for him. He becomes hated by those around him and even himself when he tries to help an ex-girlfriend, now selling herself out for smack, but messes up at every opportunity. 
From the first page, it's clear that this story is the end, and we say goodbye to somebody with each issue, but the most important one is when Kit returns to say goodbye. Now, I don't want to get all soppy here, but Ennis <laughs> can write damn good endings, but he's also good at writing believable relationships, and had a way of making it clear just what John saw in Kit. We watched their relationship from the start, ties and its lows, and she left when John hit rock bottom. And because of how personal Ennis writes, the reader was right there beside John the entire time. So when Kit returns, it's just as much of a shock to the reader as it is to John. It's a sad ending between the two that tries to be happy, but one that's necessary for the end, as well as one that makes John grow as a character. He doesn't change at all, but he accepts that he'll never change, and manages to score one small win before the end. Some writers can't write endings, but Ennis can. Not only write them, but clear everything, from friends to the lung cancer he introduced, which allows the next writer to write his John Constantine. It's just one of those endings that you know has to happen even if you don't want it to. I like Delano's run and I'm a big fan of Milligan's, but nobody's ever written or made me care about John Constantine the way Garth Ennis did, and that's why this arc in particular is one of my all-time favourites. Yeah, and see, the, the great thing about Hellblazer is it is one of the comics that was passed on, because mm. that was all coming out just before you were even born, wasn't it? Yeah. Because when did he leave? 95, 96? Because doesn't Preacher start in 95? Yeah. And he'd quit Hellblazer by the time Preacher came out. Wasn't I born around issue 9 of Preacher? Around, the, around was it 3 or 4? Maybe three or four issue five. You were born just after Preach started. Yeah. Because it still was one of the few comics that I was buying monthly when you came. Because mum used to make me go and buy it. No, we're going to go and buy Preacher. Right, yeah. So because she knew how much I liked it. And yeah, Hellblazer's... Hell, Garth Ennis' Hellblazer run, it has its rough spots. Yeah. Will Simpson <laughs> being the most obvious. But his run from Dangerous Habits to that, you can read that block of John Constantine and get everything you need to know yeah. and never have to read it before or since mm. and in some ways that's that's not a good thing because it doesn't make you want to read the rest of it Yeah. but on the other hand if you just want a, a definitive guide to who we think John Constantine is mm. that's who he is yeah. just read the Ennis run and it's all available it's all out in trade now I presume yeah, they're, they're releasing the new ones where it's every single issue in right, chronological. Because sometimes that stuff's not on Comixology or the DC app. Right. Whether or not because it's Vertigo and it's mature readers and they don't want kids just clicking on it, I yeah. don't know. But some of that is only available in trade paper. I don't think Preacher's on the DC app. Right. So I doubt Hellblazer is, but I'd have to have a look. But yeah, Rake at the Gates of Hell's a brilliant ending. But he, he ended his other two series he's brilliant as well. Hitman's mm. a brilliant ending. Preacher's yeah. a brilliant ending. Yeah. And Preacher stumbled a bit before it got to the ending yeah but at least the ending was was excellent yeah which will and we'll cover all of that in in coming weeks good choice mm-hmm. all good choices excellent so uh, hopefully we've made you have a little bit of a think lovely listener about various different comics that you may not have read or may not have exposed yourself to maybe not exposing yourself <laughs> probably wouldn't be good but that there's something here that we've mentioned that you've never read that you'll go out and check out. A lot of this, what we've covered, a lot of it's freely available, some of it isn't. Some of it's never been reprinted, so you'd have to hit the back issue bins or see if they're on Comixology or the various different Marvel or DC apps or whatever, because you can still do in-app purchases with Marvel and DC. Right. Or you can't with Comixology, which is why I stopped using Comixology, okay. by and large. And that's it. 
our pick of ten truly great, even favourite comics that we love. We, of course, reserve the right to alter this list at any time Mm -hmm. and at any point. And if we did it tomorrow, it may be a completely different list. Probably, yeah. But that's where we are as of the summer of 2015. Mm -hmm. So if you said to me, right, pick ten of your favourite comics again... And this time there were no restrictions and I could choose stuff we'd already covered, it would be a completely different list. Yeah. Um, so, that's it. That'll wrap it up for this week. Next time on our all new episode of Hey Kids Comics, some more Neil Gaiman, Superman Green Lantern and the legendary Lost Legends of the Green Flame. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.